years after that, and 50 years after that, it, it, when it's built up, it's pretty small. In fact, the people who see that temple just weep because they remember the previous temple, and they say, well, man, we used to have this gigantic house for God, now all we've got is this little house for God. But over time, they knock down those walls, and they keep building, and they do all the stuff I was talking about in Jesus' lifetime, and they turn that temple into this much, much larger, huge, enormous thing. And the priests in Jesus' day were the who's who of, of society. They were the highest leadership level that was underneath the Roman impostors who ruled the kingdom in his time. And Jesus enters into what is just a tremendously complicated, tremendously complicated religious situation. And he's sent alone. I know he has those 12 disciples with him, but you can decide for yourself how much help they were. I kind of feel like he was alone on the week of his betrayal. And as he enters Jerusalem, he has all of those Sadducee high priests, and he has Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, which is the 71 group of elders that lead lead Jerusalem and the whole nation underneath the Roman oppressors. And in the middle of all this, Jesus enters, and he says, I am somebody that you need to take note of. It's a little bit like any one of the 30-year-old men in this room driving to Washington, D.C. this morning and saying, hey, I'm here. You've needed me, right, for a long time. You've waited for this moment. It didn't look anything different than that. Besides the miracles, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus didn't kind of shine like Justin Bieber does. He didn't stand out in a crowd. I'm making fun. I know I'm comparing Jesus and Justin Bieber. But I think that's worth noting because in our society, we notice beautiful people and wealthy people. And people drive in in sports cars. And Jesus kind of, he walked in from Jericho and eventually took a little tiny of a donkey on Passover Sunday. Pretty small stuff. And people took note to some degree, but they never got the understanding. And Jesus says, look, I am this priest you've been waiting for. I am this king, this person who's been waiting to come. This passage is going to build on that thought process because those Jews, when they looked at him, they said, well, you're far too insignificant to be who we've waited for for all these years. There's no way this one person who's just another Jewish man that's 30 years old, looks like everybody else in a lineup at the local police department, same guy. We've seen you millions of times, and yet you think you're going to change the world. Something's different about you. And so the writer of Hebrews, years after Jesus has died, risen, and gone into heaven and ascended into heaven, writes for us, and he writes, and he's looking for how to dig into the roots of Judaism and say, look, God has done unique things. It didn't start with Abraham. It didn't start with Moses. It didn't start with those temples. And it certainly doesn't rest on the temple that you're worshiping in today. It's actually beyond all that. The priests that you look at, they're nasty representatives of God. They're actually pretty broken in some interesting ways. They're not all that much, they're they're not all that special. So let me tell you about Jesus, and let me compare him, says the writer of Hebrews, to some people in the Old Testament. So here's what we need to start reading, and this is going to sound a little strange, but it talks about this guy named Melchizedek. That's how you say that name. It's from Genesis 14. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is Jerusalem before David conquered it, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham himself apportioned a tenth part of everything. He tithed. He gave his money to this priest. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Genesis never tells us where this guy comes from. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Strange passage, right? 
But the writer of Hebrews is telling us, listen, you want to think that God is doing only what you can see. But let me tell you that God has been at work so long that he's been at work for 2,000 years before you guys got started with this temple, he was still at work. He was at work in Jerusalem in the very same place where Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, almost, in the same place where David's going to build the temple, in the same place that Jesus is going to be crucified. God had already worked there long, long before. And he said, let me just tell you, there's this guy, he's a weird dude named Melchizedek. We don't know about him, but he was somebody special. And Jesus is in that order. There's something about that priesthood. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi, like Jewish priests were supposed to be. He wasn't one of Abraham's descendants at all. He was just this guy who knew God. And it popped a hole in their religious thinking. It broke through. It it found a loophole that they hadn't thought of and said, "Your, your religious laws are built on this stuff like your temple, and it's built into this monstrous, amazing, you think it's beautiful sort of thing. But the fact is that when Jesus shows up and you don't even recognize him, when the Son of God, the priest from heaven, actually appears and all those other priests think of themselves as too good and they won't bow the knee to this priest, well, believe me, you're missing the boat. You're missing the boat. It's frightening to think that the people of God can miss him this much. And so Melchizedek, this strange Old Testament guy, he says, well, let's bring him into the storyline and let's get you thinking about this. If you look in the Old Testament, most of the people you can probably name off the top of your head, people like David or Moses or Aaron or Isaiah, they're they're one of these three things. They're prophet, king, or priest. What was Jesus? He was all of them, right? Right? And that was one of the problems when he showed up. He said, I'm announcing God's kingdom. Here it is for the taking. You can be a part of this. If you join in, the kingdom of heaven is within you, he says. It's not out there. It's not conquering the Romans. It's in here, conquering your sin. You are enslaved, but you're enslaved to somebody worse than Caesar. You're enslaved to your own desires, your brokenness. Let me set you free, said Jesus. And he said, I'm a king, and I can be that king in your heart if you'll let me. I'm a priest. I can connect you with God if you let me. I'm a prophet. I can tell you the way that society needs to change if you will listen to me. But most people didn't want a king, and they certainly didn't want a prophet. Nobody likes the prophets. And being connected to God, it sounds good until you get real close to him, and then you find out that he's a really good God, and he expects us to really love that connection. And we tend to like life on our own, right? So Jesus found it hard to announce these things, and people generally rejected him. And finally, what did they do? They they killed him, right? That was the end, almost. We're not to Easter Sunday, so we don't talk about the other side of that. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and he's king all at the same time. I want to read for you just a couple more snippets. We're going to skip that top one. Go to the bottom. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is Psalm 110 being quoted, one of the most often quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. You are a priest for order, forever after the order of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This makes Jesus somebody so special that what he's saying is all of the Old Testament covenants, all of the things, the agreements that God made with people, they didn't work, but this one will. One of the hardest things is when two people in a marriage have been kind of broken people and there's been this hurt between them. And then all of a sudden they they try to get it right. And you you actually have to enter in grace and decide you're going to forgive that other person. And there has to be this connection that's that's an agreement. Well, Jesus is actually saying, listen, 
you've been not able to trust all of those old covenants because you haven't been able to trust yourselves. But let me tell you that God is crossing the line and he's fulfilling the covenant on your end and on his. And he's the better covenant bringer because he can bring a covenant that represents you and not just himself. This is a different sort of covenant altogether and it's a different sort of priesthood and it's a different sort of kingship. It's a different sort of authority. It's a different sort of, it's a, different sort of a lot of things. And these people are like, we've never seen anything like this. And he says, well, that's why it's going to work. And that's why everything you've seen before hasn't worked. Because to some degree or other, it relied on you. And this one doesn't. This one doesn't. It goes on to say these words in 26 and 27, and they're such good words. You've got to dig in. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, not like the Jewish high priest, not like maybe the priest that we think about today, but holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since this Jesus, this priest, did this once for all when he offered up himself. And by the way, he'll say it in another passage that he didn't actually need to have anybody sacrifice for him because he didn't fail in any way. That's one of the lines here. Look at these words. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Holy is a really strange word. It's actually a different word that's used than that's translated most of the time in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And what it means simply is being a part of a covenant. And Jesus, when he's born, is born to this priesthood. You know, most priests didn't know they were going to be priests when they were born. They actually got there through circuitous routes. They were of a certain tribe. But even if you're of that tribe, you might not be a priest. And so they had to get there through, through some choosing process. And what the writer says of Hebrews is, Jesus was always chosen to be this priest. From the very beginning, since the world's beginnings, from before the world's beginnings, this Jesus was the person who was supposed to relate God to man. The word innocent means he never harmed anyone. I just want you to think about how profound this word is. Because you harm people. And I harm people. You might not know it. I I don't know where this shirt came from. Whether it came from one of those sweatshops, sweatshops on the Pacific Rim and some single mom was working for 10 cents an hour to make this. I don't know that, right? We don't know if the websites we look at are doing any, no, well, some of them we know are bad, but there's plenty of them. We don't know where the money's going when we look at them. The advertising in the bottom of my Gmail, where is that? Who, who's getting, there's all these systems that the world's about, multinational companies. My dad was involved in a retirement plan, and he got one of those watchdog groups to look at his retirement a few years ago, and he realized that underneath these names that seemed innocuous, he wasn't thinking he was investing in anything horrible, underneath those names were companies that, did some pretty horrible things. And he realized all of a sudden, he's like, I'm investing in things I would never put money towards if I knew it, but they're actually got these, you know, big names that they know what nobody would actually invest in. And so he says, listen, you're, you're part of a harmful society, and we're breaking the world apart. Ephesians teaches this very clearly. Sin in Genesis 3 broke the world profoundly. And then human beings since then, who were supposed to be in charge and, and blessing the world, have broken it more and more profoundly. We've had a lot of things break in our world. One of my most terrific pictures of this that just for some reason it affected my imagination was when they were looking, and they are still looking, for that plane in the, the Sea of Japan, right? And they kept thinking they found it. Did you notice that? They'd find these big blips on the radar, so to speak, and they would come across gigantic floating rafts of plastic this or that. And they realized these things weren't that plane they were looking for. They were just the trash that's all over the South Pacific. And the, we've actually 
broken our world to the point where our seas are filled with things that we've discarded in places like Pottstown and they've flown down the Schuylkill, down the Delaware, into the Delaware Bay and into the Atlantic Ocean. And now we have these circles of brokenness all across our oceans. When, when it says that Jesus didn't harm anybody, it's talking about all that stuff. He never did any of that. Somehow he could see beyond all of it, and he never misstepped. He never somehow entered into the plan of brokenness, which is the opposite side of this whole thing. Instead, he stayed on the side of God saying, we want to bless and heal and recover and make this place a better place. He was a priest that didn't actually side on our side of the line at all, never stepped one foot across the line. He's unstained. That word means undefiled. You know, even when you don't sin, there are sins that stick to you. Have you ever noticed this? You probably have in your mind some criticism criticism that happened of you when you were in elementary school, right? Come on, everybody does. Some coach told you you were never going to be good enough. Some math teacher looked at you as though you had three eyes when you asked a question about trigonometry. You, You had somebody in your life who didn't think you were good. The principal of my high school wrote to the college I attended and said, don't let this guy in. He did. He really did this. And he said, a lot of potential, mostly unfulfilled. Those were lines on my college application that I couldn't get off. I don't know how I actually got into college after they wrote them. That was the principal. He had decided in about ninth grade he didn't like me. I have no idea why. I went back to talk to him once, and he said, are you just... Yeah, I won't even tell you what he said, but it wasn't good. He, de- he still doesn't like me. Today, he does not like me. And I can't remember anything that, mean, that has been so broken between us. And yet, I can tell you, I still remember, I am 39, almost 40 years of age. And when I was 18 years of age, 20 plus years ago, he wrote those words on a piece of paper and he let me read them. And I still remember them verbatim. And they stained my heart. They defiled me. Some of you have had dads that have broken you. Moms that have said words to you that were harsh. Grandparents, kids, I don't know who it is in your life, but you've been stained. You've been defiled. Those things came at Jesus, and he didn't get stuck. They bounced off him. I don't know how he did it. Actually, I mean, he's amazing. And one part of these words, they're they're, there so we can actually worship and go, wow, this someone was so different than the rest of us. He's separate from sinners. He's not like the rest of us. And we have to look at him and go, wow, this is an amazing God. And then this God has decided to be our priest. He's decided to connect us with himself. The, The metaphors I know fly all over the place. And you go, how do we figure this out? Well, Just bear with the writer of Hebrews. He mixes metaphors often. And he's exalted above the heavens. If you've read Hebrews 1, it says that he is higher than the angels. He is the highest of the the heavenly councils. If you read or if you listen to Psalm 89, which we read this morning to begin our service, it actually pictures God the Father at the head of a throne room table uh, where all of the heavenly beings sit. And it's as though he's the chief of the council. That's the picture of Psalm 89. And he's exalted above all of those heavenly beings around the table. It's a great picture. It's beautiful. Jesus is this sort of priest. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That little tent of meeting that Moses met in, that tabernacle where the people of God met for hundreds of years, the temple where where David dedicated the space and Solomon actually built the building, All places where broken things happened, where broken people led. But there's a tent somewhere else, a tent in heaven. 
And it pictures Jesus as being the high priest in this tent. And he says, the writer of Hebrews says, you have your whole religious pictures. And he's talking to Hebrews, Jewish people. And he's saying, you have this whole religious picture about how your religion works. Well, let me tell you that that whole thing is just a model of something else that's in heaven. And sitting up there, there's not a Sadducean high priest. There's not one of the Hasmonean, you know, maybe know what those words even mean. But there's not these priests that are just these people who are normal, broken people. No, Jesus, the Son of God, is sitting in the throne room of heaven. And he is reminding God always of the love that is shared between heaven and earth. And the fact that God created man in his image and in his likeness. And he loves us. And he sent Jesus to die for us, and the sacrifice has been paid. And so there's a, an ability to connect and be priestly and, and have this relationship that's amazing. And it goes directly through Jesus the Christ, or it doesn't work at all. That's it. Through this Jesus. You know, I was thinking this past week that our big problem, when I was a kid, it seemed like our big problem, my dad always said, was that we don't believe we're sinners. And now I think we think we're sinners to the point where everything is shame. My kids and I and Shelby, we volunteer for Operation Backpack, which that's a ministry our church supports. And a couple weeks ago, on a Saturday, we did what I really thought was going to be tough. We planted ourselves at Redner's, and Lisa Heverly, the director of the ministry, said, you can do it, and I said, okay. We planted ourselves at Redner's, and we were supposed to spend two hours, between 9 and 11 in the morning, uh, inviting people to, when they go in the store, buy food for kids in Pottstown. And then they get to drop it in the basket on the way out. And I thought, oh, goodness, this is going to be tough. <laughs> and I got Maggie on my team. She's our little light bearer in our family, you know. I figured I'm a 40-year-old male. I need a little girl to help me. And I, it was tough. You know, the people of Pottstown, and maybe it's not just Pottstown, I realized they're shame-filled. And I realized this in a few different ways. One of the first guys, I said, hey, we're collecting food for Operation Backpack. You can go in there and you can buy food and we'll put it in a backpack for a kid on the weekends when the, when the school doesn't feed them and blah, blah. He says, what's wrong with you? He said, why would you let parents who are so irresponsible as to have children that they can't pay for, why would you let them have food? You're continuing to perpetuate a problem. And he was a Navy veteran you could see it on his hat and he was this big guy that just and he he lectured me right there maggie's looking at me like oh my goodness what are you gonna say dad you know and i was like what if that really was true what if we only got what we deserved what we earned what if that's how the world really works how much shame are we in the middle of and then i thought about this guy's soul because he thinks this economically but if he thinks it economically he probably thinks it spiritually and that means his soul is vacant of grace and the fact that my god loves me in the most broken moment of my life when i have looked him in the face and said i'd rather choose some lesser messed up thing than to follow you the fact that god loves me that's the greatest hope of my life and i thought this guy it's like it doesn't translate but then I saw other people, I, there were other people who walked in, and you could just tell they were broken in some way. I mean, there were people that just, drug addict was written on their face, honestly. You know those people exist, you can just see it. You know, the, the skin and the stuff that's hurtful about them. And they, and they walked in, and they realized this was an opportunity. And I'd say, you want to give the operation back, back how much? Well, you can buy a can of macaroni and cheese for about $2. I can afford that. And you could see their heart crack open. At first, some of them would say, like, oh, what are we in for now? (laughs) But then they would realize that they had the opportunity to give to a child. And, you know, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you could see that on their faces. It cracked their hearts. 
If I was asking them for $1,000 over the next 12 months, they probably would have said, no, I can't do that. But feed a few kids, get a couple packets of this or that, no problem. And I saw shame evaporate from hearts as they received the grace of being able to be meaningful in the life of another human being. Now, I want you to think, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, or the brothers, according to the scripture, the accuser of Christians. He loves to show up in people's lives and say, you are no good. You are worthless. You know that thing you did? There's no forgiveness for that thing. There's no way that if your mom were here right now, she would disown you herself. So the God of the universe must not love you. Everybody has a mother who loves them, right? And if your mother doesn't love you, then God probably can't. That's the shame in some of those hearts in Pottstown. And there's shame in this room that's about that. Some of those people were saying, I haven't always been able to feed my kids. And here you are asking me to bless somebody else. And then they realize they could do it. And they're going, yes, I want to do that. The shame that Satan kind of speaks into our life is all sorts of little words. Your ex-husband didn't love you. Your kids don't call you. Your grandkids don't write, don't email, don't do it. Even your Facebook friends are going away. Those little whispers, they live on every block in our city, and they live in every home in this country. And shame just builds inside of our hearts. And frankly, to some extent, I think people sin because they don't think they're going to ever walk free of shame anyway, so why not just live it out for real? Why not live it out all the way when people think you're that messed up? Why not be that messed up? And I wish we could just say, And I wish we could say with enough bravado, with enough energy, with enough spirit in our hearts, with enough worship in our songs, that somehow Jesus has put himself in the throne room of heaven and he has decided to put on himself the sins of all of this world and he has decided to be the priest that takes all those things before a just God and says, you don't have to pay them back. Your justice is totally covered up and cared for with this one sacrifice where a sinless high priest offered himself instead of beating up all those other people. You can just hear Jesus on one end of the spectrum versus Satan on the other. You are not loved. No, you are. You have messed up your life. Jesus says, yep, you sure have, and I still love you. And it goes on and on and on, this battle of words, and our lives are in the middle of battles of words. We are discouraged, depressed, brokenhearted, lamenting, grief-stricken, endless things hit our hearts, and yet Jesus says, listen, I am there. I hear all those words, and when you bring them to me, they go to God. All those covenants were not enough in the Old Testament to handle that. The first one was with Adam and Eve. The second one was with Abraham. The third was with Noah. Well, the second one was with Noah. The third was with Abraham. The fourth was with Moses. The fifth was with David. There's there's covenants, agreements between God and human beings, and none of them work all the way. They just don't get there. And then there's this moment, and if you're picturing the temple in uh, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, you know that name? We kind of know he's this really big tyrant leader of Babylon, and he comes to Jerusalem with tens of thousands of soldiers, and he's around the outside of the city of Jerusalem with all of these soldiers, and there's this amazing moment that happens. Jeremiah is inside those walls, the prophet. And if you're counting, Ezekiel and Daniel are both in exile already. Nebuchadnezzar has conquered Jerusalem twice, and he's on his third time. And this time he's going to burn the temple to the ground. That big temple that Solomon built, it ends here. It will be rebuilt before Jesus comes to life, uh, comes to to human life in Bethlehem. But there's this moment where these these soldiers and the, the people of Israel are like, maybe our life is done. 
And the writer of Hebrews decides to quote the prophecy that comes from that time. Now listen to the words of this prophecy. This is from Jeremiah 29 and 30 and 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Why is he establishing a new covenant with a new priest? The reason why is because the old one didn't work. And this writer is saying to all those Hebrew people, please understand your covenant isn't working and your priests aren't working. They're messed up. There is a better way. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I won't tell you who, but on our way here in the Bitework van, we discerned and discovered two of the Ten Commandments were broken this morning in our home. I won't tell you who by, but it wasn't Shelby. (laughs) And it wasn't maybe the ones you're thinking of, but there were two Ten Commandments broken. And that's the commandments that he's talking about here. The covenant that I made with your fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Words that live endlessly, and we've broken them. We've we've broken them again and again. For they did not continue in my covenant, and neither could we. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But then it says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Just think for a second that what Satan loves to do in the life of a human being is he loves to say you are disconnected, isolated, disenfranchised, left out there. You are a slave. You are an ex-son. You are an orphan. You are something other than a child of God. And hear those words from the beginning of this message where you just, they, they echo in our minds, who can awake a king at two in the morning and ask for a cup of water? A child. And every bit of Satan's power is endlessly focused on telling people they are not children of God. I will put their law, my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. Even if they are saying today, I'm not their God, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Just Hear those words, for all of those people shall know me. You know, in church sometimes there there are these people we know that those people know the Lord. And then there are other people, and we say, well, we're not so sure about those other people, right? Come on, it's true. Every church you've attended, including this one, has people who you kind of go, okay, and I'm telling you my list um, of who's holy and who's not. But, you know, it, it gets in there a little easily. Yep, Bing, you're on the list. I won't tell you where. Um, it, you know, and we, we have this list, and we naturally think, well, these are the people who get it, and those are the people who don't, right? And yet the fact is that God's love goes to the strangest places and connects people who we get surprised by the fact that they know God. And our stereotypes tend to be wrong. And they tend to be superficial, and we look at people and we say, well, they, we know that they're blah, blah, blah. Well, eh, maybe not. Because God is working inside of hearts that we can't see, and he's moving in ways that we don't understand. And frankly, that tent is in heaven, wherever Jesus is, and we don't see him, and we don't hear his words clearly enough. And yet he's telling us, please know that I'm up there and I'm saying those words. And when Bing or Josh or anybody else messes up, I'm there speaking on their behalf. And my blood is crying out from the cross and saying, that penalty that penalty for that sin, that one, that, that too is paid. That's done. That's over. 
And I know it was committed about 22 seconds ago, but it's done before it even got off the ground because the everlasting God of the universe has decided to put the sin of all of us on this one man. How can we ever imagine such a great salvation? For they shall all know me, the law of God on the hearts and minds of men. What a gift. What a gift. So this morning, I don't know what's chewing on you, but something is, right? There are things that just kind of echo in your ears. There are things that tell you to be self-righteous, proud, certain of yourself, or maybe they tell you that you have nothing to be certain about and you don't have any pride left and you just kind of are broken. Whatever the case is, Satan accuses you of things and he tries to get you to be tempted in all of these different ways. So this is what God says about you. You are forgiven and you are loved. And then it ties in with these, and I just want to go through it in kind of a bullet point fashion so we make sure we get the point. Ties in, it says, prayer is the opportunity to connect with our high priest. You know, if you were in the Old Testament times, you had a priest in the temple, and you were not a priest if you were out here. Well, that whole thing moved up a pay scale. It's like everybody in the company just went up here into management. That means that everybody's a priest, and yet, in some ways, nobody's a priest, right? Because we all have one high priest, and his name is Jesus. There are no high priests in this church. Josh Playwork, not a high priest. Tim, not a high priest. Josh Hostetter, not a high priest. I don't care who you think gets it. They're not priests for you. You are called to connect with God personally. And prayer is a personal connection spot where we connect through our high priest. That means, A, you can't connect without that high priest, but B, Anybody can connect through that high priest. So nobody's out and everybody's in if we go through this one channel. And we all have the opportunity to move a whole lot further up than we, than we tend to think. Two, Jesus' followers are priests on earth and we are wa- called to walk lives of prayer. That means every person is connected in this whole thing. We love this thought. That means that it's not Josh or Tim or any of the elders of our church who are called It's everybody who's called, right? You are a called child of God. And if you're a child of God, you're put in the place you were put for a purpose. God has called you and you are a priest. You are his representative, his intercessor, his connector for an outside world that is watching. Parker Ford Church is supposed to go up, in, and out. And the up is connecting with him. But the out is making sure we're connecting other people with him. And that's why he hands us this great, amazing priestly connection with himself. We are many priests underneath a gigantic, amazing priest who's in heaven. And the last thing is this. Church is not a gathering where we connect with God. It is a gathering of, place, of people who are connected with God already. You don't come here to connect for the first time in the week. And if you're relying on Parker Ford Church for that, please don't. Honestly, just a side note, please, please, please connect with God on Tuesdays. They're really good days for God. He's wonderful on Tuesdays. And his office is open on Thursdays. And frankly, it's open in the middle of the night all seven days of the week. And the connection between us and God, all of us, between us and God, grows better with each other when we are all connected with the Father who is in heaven. That's a great sound, isn't it? So the in, the up and the out give way, and there's an in, and the in relies on your connection with God. If you think somehow that it's the the church's job to connect with you, God, by all means, please help us as a church connect with God by being connected yourself. And if you have questions about how to do that, meet with us. Find us. We have these little booklets that we pass out in the PFC 101 class and throughout the year at different points. They're called Personally Connecting. 
They're like they're, they're personal practices that, that walk you through how to just shape your life in a way that God can connect with you during the week. Church is a gathering of priests, not a place where one priest ministers to a bunch of other people. It's a gathering of priests, and that means we rely on you. My life relies on your life and, and, and vice versa. There are called leaders. There are elders, and there are pastors, and there are deacons, and there are all these different words we could talk about, and yet the God of the universe has built us to be priests and to be connected with him individually. But none of that works while we have kind of that big thought process in our head going on where we think that we're supposed to be somebody special, where we think that somehow our shame has disqualified us. None of that works. We all have to get down to that little place where a child can ask a king for a cup of water. That's where it works. And Jesus walks into Jerusalem and he says, listen, all of your priestly stuff will be gone in a few decades. Your 350-foot-tall temple, people will be coming to see it, the remnants of it, for thousands of years, but it'll be gone within a few decades. Your priests will go into exile and they will be no more, and we don't even know who those priests are from Jesus' day. All of this stuff will break down, and maybe churches today break down, but Jesus never breaks down. Any of this stuff can be broken, except for at the core of it all is a high priest who is not going to lose his life again, who is not going to suddenly wake up and realize that he doesn't love us. He has decided forever to stand in the throne room of heaven and to love us by loving God enough to connect the two. And we are never, ever disconnected children, ever, ever again. So who can wake up a king at two in the morning? Nobody but a child. And we all enter, like Jesus said we did, as little, tiny children. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest in the order of priests that we've never seen. He is below all, in all, above all, and it's through all that, that, that he is making, that we see this God who is amazingly beautiful in our time. Join me in prayer. Lord and Father, we would ask that you would change our hearts. That what we think this life is about would be altered by what we see in this passage. That somehow we wouldn't walk past what we see and and forget that what it does is it puts so much more value and emphasis on us as human beings. It blesses us with the ability to know you and says, we are called, we are broken, we are wayward children of God, but we are called and we are loved. And we can never afford to, to, to lose sight of those two words, wayward and children. We are never not wayward. We have brokenness that's so deep we can't seem to find the beginnings of it. Someday you'll do that, but that's not today yet. And on the other hand, we can never afford to think that we're not children, beloved of a father who has sent a high priest that can get us connected. So God, this morning we ask that you would help us to whatever our frame of mind, whatever's walk, whatever we're walking through, that you would just pour grace into our lives and help us to feel the Spirit of God and help us to know that we are called to this great purpose that sits around us, this great broken world that we're in the middle of, that we're called to love because you love it, Lord God. Help us to experience your grace so deeply within ourselves that our heart breaks for those around us, that we love you, and that we come into this place can, prepared to connect because we're connected first to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.